0: The Saga Thing, where we're putting these sagas of the Icelanders on trial. I'm John. And I'm Andy. And we, we're both at our houses.
1: Which is not usually newsworthy, Andy. (laughs) No, but it is this week. You see, normally we would both be in Kalamazoo for the International Congress on Medieval Studies, Mm -hmm. recording the podcast in a dorm, in between panel sessions, between drinking
0: sessions, and just generally
1: (laughs) having a good
0: old time. Yeah, as opposed to doing this in our houses, where we are recording in between getting our kids to bed and drinking sessions.
1: Drinking sessions, yes. Uh, well, we are not in Kalamazoo, of course, uh, because the organizers decided to put the conference online for another year due to that whole COVID thing that we've been hearing so much about.
0: Ah, hopefully, yes. Hopefully,
1: hopefully we will be back in Western Michigan
0: next year. But uh, <laughs> you
1: know,
0: who knows? It's a yeah. It's not not a sentence you expect to hear uh, so sincerely spoken, but. But I agree. Yeah. Uh, See you next year, Kalamazoo.
1: Right. But for now, we are back and recording our second episode dedicated to Laxdala Saga. I cannot believe it took us this long to get back to uh, Laxdala Saga. But then
0: again, I can believe it. Well, you know, we're back for more punishment because we clearly didn't learn our lesson last time.
1: Uh, We barely got started last time. It was basically one long genealogy.
0: And yet we talked for so long. Didn't we, though? I mean, there was a a lot to cover, but arguably it's only now that we're starting the actual saga part of the saga.
1: You mean if you're willing to argue wrong?
0: Oh, oh, yeah. No, definitely. Uh, But you and I think differently about sagas than most people. Uh, Last episode was mostly about setting the genealogical table. And there are those who don't agree that knowing the names of the great-great-aunt of the protagonist is an absolute necessity. Well, when your great-great-aunt is all the deep-minded, you yeah. kind of want people to know about it, don't you? Andy, speaking of which, who's your most
1: famous ancestor? Um, My dad has done a lot of work on genealogies. Over the years. Um, Has he? If memory serves, I believe at one point he told me that we were descended from Robert the Bruce. Wow. Um, perhaps indirectly or something. I don't remember exactly. But uh, I've asked him about it since, and he says he doesn't remember telling me that. Uh, but I'm going to choose to think that, uh, sure, I am a direct descendant of Robert the Bruce. So so your ancestor betrayed Mel Gibson? Well, not Mel Gibson himself. <laughs> you see, there's this thing called acting, John. Acting! acting.
0: That dates us. Um, Yeah, I don't think I have any. Uh, As far as I know, my family's been peasants for a long, long time. Salt of the earth types. No, just peasants. Yeah, well, uh, you're you're doing a good job of breaking that pattern. Thanks. Thanks very much. Is there something lower than peasants? (laughs) 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 Uh, But resting the subject back onto the actual podcast... Our previous episode was about the early settlers of Western Iceland, the ancestors mm-hmm. of the major protagonists of this saga. And yeah. since it's always possible that no one memorized or even listened to the last episode, I think it's time to explain what we've did.
1: No, 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 no. Yeah, no it's Why don't we just say instead... But we could just say instead, um, no, no. Go, "I'm going to put a link to the genealogy I created in this in the show notes here, I and people could just easier. click on that and just can look at the genealogy, and they don't nope. have to listen to us nope. do these voices." It's much easier to say.
0: Last time on Saga Thing. Our story began with the 9th century Norwegian diaspora told in miniature, as Kettle Flatnose and his children skedaddle from the power of King Harald Fair. Kettle's sons choose to set their caps for Iceland, but Kettle calls Iceland a stinking fish camp and turns his flat nose up at the thought of living there. Instead he finishes out his days in the Hebrides with his daughter Owl the Deep Minded. Owl suffers the loss of her father, then her husband, then her son to battle, before reconsidering the benefits of life in a fish camp.
1: Absconding from Ireland on a secret ship, she takes along seven grandchildren. Her six granddaughters are strategically placed in marriages that spreads the family tree into a canopy that covers northwestern Europe, while her grandson Olaf runs her farm in Iceland. Finally, Owl dances with the Grim Reaper on the day of Olaf's wedding, concluding her story. Now we begin a narrative about her descendants that will shape the rest
0: of Laxtella Saga. Something like that. <laughs> <laughs> so, it's been argued that sagas never begin entirely in Medius Reis. That there's mm-hmm. always something of a preamble. <laughs> but all of that, the entire last episode, amounts to a preamble to the actual saga. It's a whole mess of Reis before the Medius, I think. I had a mess of Midias once. Didn't know if I was coming or going.
1: Well, that's the thing, right? Oof.
0: <laughs> so yeah, um, the first chapters are a prelude. Thank you, folks. We'll be here all week. Rah, tip your waitress. Uh, so these first chapters, yeah, they're they're not irrelevant, right? They're just they're just a prelude. Uh the death right. of Al the Deep Minded marks a turning point. Al kind of sets the hard drive for the story. She's the Mater who establishes the foundations of family dominance. She establishes the politics of the next several generations, and she commands universal respect right up to and, honestly, even after her death. Once mm-hmm. she's gone, the saga loses that sense of social order that she personified. hoskuld her great-grandson, is far more chaotic and short-sighted than Nana Aud.
1: Yeah. Now, some people who read this thing argue that Aud and Gudrun form matching bookends to Laxdal Saga. I think, and you seem to think too, that that's not entirely accurate. Mm -hmm. Because Gudrun is the more dynamic figure, but the energy of Gudrun and Hoskold and the other scions of the family is more chaotic. Mm. But we kind of already did this argument last episode, didn't we?
0: Yes, well, this is the recap part.
1: Yeah, well, we already did that too.
0: Well, then what are we waiting for? Okay. Part four, the life of Thordred Thorsten's daughter. So, this episode begins with Olaf Felon taking up the reins of his grandmother Al's farm after her funeral. And, of course, after his wedding, which was the same time. Mm-hmm. But as it turns out, Olaf is not an important person in our story. No,
1: the whole thing is kind of a mislead. Mm-hmm. The first few chapters laid out his family history and his status as Al's favorite grandchild. And it feels like the next step in our story is to learn about the exciting career of Olaf Felon. Yeah. Instead, we jump tracks entirely.
0: Well, not entirely. We jump tracks more or less. Yeah, I mean, we do get a brief glimpse of the future of Olaf's family, and they are an impressive lot. Mm-hmm. His descendants include his son Thord Bellower, his son-in-law Skeggi of Midfjord, his mm-hmm. great-grandson Snorri Gothi. I mean, these are these mm-hmm. are big names, and of course, you know, all three of them have become our Thingmen. So clearly, we uh, we endorse this family line. But when yes, it comes we do. Yeah, but when it comes to Olaf himself, all the saga really says is, Olaf became an influential man and a great chieftain. He lived at Vam till his old age. Now, in many ways, it's the ideal life for an early chieftain. Mm.
1: Olaf is a stable, peaceful man who begins and ends his time as a respected man
0: from a respected family. What more could you want? But I think the problem is that Olaf's life is a little too respectable. Uh, He enjoys financial success, prestige, and apparently a relatively peaceful life. It's quite admirable. It's even aspirational. But it's not really the meat and potatoes of a saga meal. No one gets killed, in other words. So. Uh, yes. yeah, there There's isn't, not really
1: a story there.
0: Right. I mean, there isn't a single act of violence attached to Olaf's name in the story. That's not always the case, by the way. Olaf shows up in a lot of sagas. Yeah, which makes sense if he's an important chieftain
1: of the early Commonwealth age. Mm-hmm. He's in Njal Saga, for example. He's in Eil Saga. Airbikia Saga, Gisli, Grecia Saga. The man gets around. Mm-hmm. He's important, but he's never really at the center of any of those stories either.
0: No, uh, poor Olaf. Always a go never the bride. In this saga, all he gets is an almost embarrassingly abrupt segue into the next part of the saga. The mm-hmm. saga tells us, Olaf was living at Vam when his brother-in-law, Dalakold fell ill and died. And that's it. Yeah, that's it. I mean, we're off to spend some time with uh, Dalakold's son, Hoskold, and his widow. Thorgard. This is the vein of conflict that's going to power the saga. A vein of conflict,
1: which seems mm-hmm. to suggest that uh, Hoskold and his mother don't get along too well.
0: Oh, yeah, no, no, not exactly. I should explain. Uh, Dalekold's son is Hoskold, Uh We saw Dalekold briefly in our last episode when he married Thorgard, Thorsten's daughter. Thorgerd is
1: one of Olaf's sisters. I mean, who isn't? Well, that, true, yeah. And you can, you can check out the genealogy I mentioned before in the show notes. Um, to just see what a big mess it is.
0: Right. I mean, we talked about it in more detail last episode, but uh, Olaf has a six pack of sisters all over the North Atlantic.
1: Good point. Yes. And, and this one actually married Dalekul.
0: Yes. And, and once his son Hoskold takes over the farm and establishes himself a bit, uh, the widow, Thorger decides she's not really ready for retirement. Mm. Uh, the text also makes a point of telling us that she was still young and beautiful. Well, I mean, how young is she? She seems to have an adult son. I don't know exactly. But, you know, uh, teenagers
1: can be adults in these stories. So she can still yeah, be about 30? I think that's probably about right, I'm guessing. Um, and it's, you know, keep in mind, it's the 10th century. 30 is the new 20.
0: <laughs> right. <laughs> anyway, uh, Thorger decides she'd like to see Norway. So she takes the wealth that she thinks is hers from the farm and gets a ship heading for Trondheim.
1: So there's one seat of conflict. Just as Horskjold is trying to establish himself as a man of consequence, his mom takes most of the movable property and leaves
0: town. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, that's actually not the conflict I was talking about. But yes, that's something to keep in mind, right? I mean, she does split up their inheritance, so to speak, from the husband and father yeah. and takes it with her. But what I was talking about was that Thordred gets to Norway and finds herself a new husband. His uh-huh. name is Harjolf. He's described as an ugly but impressive man with a reputation as a skilled warrior. Their marriage is a success. They come to love one another great very deeply.
1: Which, it's interesting because that's not something that's said about her first marriage. Interesting. Why? Because of this saga's focus on women's stories, right? You know, we had the marriage arranged for Thorgard by her slightly Machiavellian grandmother. Mm -hmm. um, And that one's pretty politically successful. But the marriage she chooses for herself is the one that actually makes her happy. That's Maybe true. There's a message in there.
0: Yeah, and I think that's actually a pattern that we can see recurring through through the sagas quite a bit, uh, including, by the way, with Halskald's daughter Hogarth Longlegs in Njal's Saga. Right. Uh, but this is a happy marriage, and this happy marriage soon results in a child. Thorgerd's second son is a boy named Hrút.
1: Ah ha ha! There he is. <laughs> yes. Now, people who remember Njal's Saga might have been wondering where Halskald's brother was. Halskold and Hrutt, as adults, are featured in the first part of that saga in a very memorable way. Yes. Uh, but in that saga, they were a team. Except for an awkward bit at the very beginning of the saga where Hrutt describes Holgerth long Longlegs as having thief-size, mm. uh, they tend to get along really well. But here... Here, mm. yeah, not so much. Yeah, but uh, we're jumping ahead quite a bit to the, right. actually, the next episode.
0: A generation, yes. <laughs> Uh, for now, the important bit is that Thorgard and Harjolf have a happy marriage, but it's tragically cut short when Herjolf dies after an illness, uh, leaving Thorgard a widow for the second time while still, again, a relatively young woman. Poor she Thorgard. returns to Iceland, uh, but leaves young Hrút in the care of his father's
1: family. So she's moving back to Iceland to be with her son Håskald.
0: Yeah, uh, she settles back in at their farm and lives with Hoskold, but only for a few years before she also dies of an illness. So much illness, and, and many questions for
1: me about how we're going to do the uh, the body count with all of these. Yeah,
0: well, we'll talk about that in, I don't know, six, seven, eight months. We get that sounds there. good. It's a date.
1: Uh, so Thorgird gets buried in a mound in Iceland, which is uh, another nice reference to mound burials mm-hmm. um, in the sagas. And Hoskuld takes possession of her belongings and all of her wealth after her death. Yeah, all of it. And that's the key. He takes yeah. all of it. And in case we miss the significance of that, the saga just goes ahead and tells us that Hoskuld took it all despite the fact
0: that his brother Hrutt was entitled to half. And there's the rest of that seed of conflict. Halsgald has seized his brother's inheritance. Andy, how do we feel about this? Well, I mean, I know how I feel about
1: it. Um, Halsgald's an Icelander. Their Mm -hmm. mother died in Iceland in his home, and he's never met this kid in his life. True. So it's not a shock that he wouldn't feel obligated to divide up Thorgerd's property, especially since they've been living together and her wealth and her stuff is all mixed up with his. And this is all Mm -hmm. an inheritance from... From Hoskold's father. Right. right. So right. what does Froot have to do with all that?
0: Well, I don't know if it is all from her, from his father because, of course, she's had a second husband who also died and presumably she got a little something from that.
1: Oh, that's true. She um, probably brought some home.
0: But I think he, he might, I mean, Hoskold might be justified legally, like might be, but he's probably not justified morally. I think what you're saying is a legal case and a good one Um, I think we can also add to that argument That they already divided up their wealth When Thorgard left Iceland Sure Uh, If Thorgard's the prodigal mother returning home Hoskild's the responsible son caring for the farm And then disintegrating and reintegrating The family's holdings as she comes and goes Dividing it up again after her death Is understandably not an appealing idea Sure. Especially
1: since it would cost him money to do it. Right. Uh, He might decide differently if she hadn't reintroduced her
0: wealth into the family farm. Sure. Uh, But morally, this is hard to defend. Uh, The wealth Thordard brought back to Iceland is almost certainly partly from her second marriage. And that marriage was legal and resulted in legitimate offspring. Yes, Haskold's philosophy here, honestly, just seems to be possession is nine-tenths of the law. It usually
1: um, works that way,
0: right? Yeah, following the finders keepers losers weepers precedent. I,
1: I'm I'm totally fine with that. I mean, when I think about this situation, if I'm in this situation, if mm-hmm. I'm a household, right? How much I I, I would think that Hrut deserves something of our mother's possessions, mm-hmm. some kind of you know some kind of wealth, but right. it's a it's a fraction of what Hrut is going to ask for. Sure. But, of course, Hrots back in Norway. Mm-hmm. So that also introduces the difficulty of dividing any property with him because he's so far away. Right. And Hoskold is clearly not the kind of man to take on an obligation that's going to cost him money and trouble if he doesn't have to.
0: Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's Hrots a long way away. They've never met, as you said earlier. Uh, but we do, I think because of this, we learn a few things right away about Hosskold. Uh One is that he's not an especially generous man. Another, and I think this is going to play out a lot in this in today's episode, uh, he's got a tin ear when it comes to social niceties. Uh, Mm. He doesn't really understand how things look to other people or he just doesn't care. Um, And a third is that he generally does what he thinks is the right thing, although he's likely to to define the right thing in ways that benefit him whenever possible.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, and the saga doesn't shy away from Hoskald's defects of character at all. Mm -hmm. He's treated far more generously in Njal's saga. But here, he's a typical self-interested chieftain with maybe
0: below average people skills. Right, and it's funny that you put it like that, because we're going to see just how tone-deaf Hoskald can be when dealing with other people. Uh, But he's not Mm -hmm. totally without social skills. He does spend half his time in Norway, where he's a respected man loyal to King Halkin. Oh, so he could have brought Froth's inheritance to him. He he just oh, didn't. Yeah. yeah, no, that's a good point. He could. Uh, but as far as I can make out, not only does he not come bearing gifts in generous hands, he never actually seeks out or meets Froth in Norway at all.
1: Now... We're going to have to leave Hrutt in Norway for the rest of this episode, but Mm -hmm. we are going to pick his story back up next time. Yes. Um, For now, I think we can start to make a few inferences about Håskald as a person, and
0: that's important for this episode. Yeah, sure. I mean, he's not a great guy in this saga, uh, and his treatment of his brother and his wife will bear that out. So we'll see. Mm -hmm. Anyway, uh, on one of his stays in Iceland, Håskald meets a new neighbor, uh, Björn, whose daughter Jorun is a Quote, good looking woman, very proud and no less clever. Uh, he proposes marriage to Jorun pretty quickly. Uh, her father puts the decision in her hands, and Jorun agrees. The whole thing is settled very quickly, right? uh, but we are shown that there's consent here. The marriage turns out to be successful to a degree. Um, Jorun is a highly skilled runner of a farm, and that's handy. Uh, though she is also sometimes headstrong, uh, but overall she and Hoskuld get on well together. Although, the writer makes a point of telling us, they rarely show active affection for one another.
1: Yeah. Joran's a no-nonsense woman with no time for PDAs from a socially clumsy guy like Hoskuld. <laughs> yeah. And honestly, that's probably a good call. And I really don't know why the author felt the need to throw that in anyway. The mm. two of them end up with four kids, so clearly there's at least some kind of rapport early in the morning, <laughs> late at night, whenever. Yeah,
0: the irresistible romantic pull of a cordial rapport with one spouse. Oh, you know what I mean.
1: Uh, so they have two sons and two daughters. Uh-huh. The oldest child is a son whose name is Thorlek, and he's going to be an important part of the saga later on.
0: Right, and obviously one of the daughters is the infamous Hogarth Longlegs. Yeah.
1: Do you get to call her infamous, though? Yeah. I was the one trying to outlaw her from Njalsag, if I remember,
0: mm-hmm. um, and you decided that she really wasn't that bad. I decided nothing of the kind. I mm-hmm. just thought Morth was worse because he was.
1: Uh-huh. Anyway, so Halskuld and thorlik they're not big fans of one another. Mm-hmm. Halskuld's other son, Barth, is a handsome, strong, intelligent man, and clearly his father's favorite. Whereas Thorlik is bigger. He's a stronger man, but he's quiet and broody and a little bit unruly. Right. You know, the kind of brother pairings we often see in the sagas.
0: Yes. Uh, and when hoskuld isn't dealing with thief size and unruly sons at home, he's working on his public image. He becomes a chieftain and has to involve himself in some of the problems brewing in the region. And there are a couple of local farmers causing unrest. And again, this is all Mm -hmm. just table setting for stuff that's going to happen later on. Uh, One, uh, one of the farmers is named Um, Killerhrop. Killerhrop is a Hebridian outlaw who moved to Iceland after some trouble, some undefined trouble back home. Uh, He's trying to push his way into power in the region. And he's taken to threatening his neighbors with violence if they show loyalty to anyone but him. Hmm. It's, it's not working. Nobody really pays attention to him. But Killer Hrop is a problem Haskold is going to have to deal with. And
1: the other problem is a local man named Thorbjorn Pockmarked. And he's got a reputation for being a difficult neighbor and a miser. Mm. His tight-fisted dealings with others are starting to cause resentments. Although so far, he's not as aggressive as Killer Hrop, but he does yeah. have a pockmarked head or face. Right. And you just can't trust a man like that.
0: What?! <laughs> Speaking I, I as a man with a few uh, blemishes myself, I kind of resent that. I'm uh, just
1: uh, translating the the
0: saga signals yeah, that we're getting. Yeah. Uh, so what we're seeing here is that Hoskold, even though he's a brand new chieftain, he's already developing kind of a long to-do list. Yeah, and since he's got all this on his plate, what's he going to do first? Well, he heroically sails back to Norway to get a good deal on some lumber. Yeah, I mean, yeah. <laughs> Part 5 Hoskold goes shopping.
1: Wait, wait a minute. This, this gets its own section? I no know. wonder we'll never finish.
0: I know. It's not a usual stop on the hero's journey.
1: Well, well, well to be fair, Hoskold is not that much of a hero. <laughs> uh, but yeah. Hoskold decides that the buildings on his farm are too rundown for a chieftain's dwelling, so he's planning a complete remodel of the place. And for that,
0: he needs wood and plenty of it. I I mean, if we're really willing to stretch a point, we want to get really cambell in here. Uh, shopping for home improvement materials, uh, could we see that as a boon to improve the lives of his family in Iceland?
1: Mm, yeah, yeah. well, and as we know,
0: lumber is very important and rather hard to come by. Yeah, I mean, you know, if we want to be generous to Hoskild here... This might be an indirect way of dealing with killerhrop as well. Uh, This Hmm. other pretender to being a chieftain, right? Hoskald's the wealthier man, and he can use that to his advantage. Sprucing up his farm, building new, grander buildings, this would go a long way towards signifying just who the chieftain in the neighborhood is.
1: Yeah. Uh, That would require being very generous to Hoskald, though. Hey,
0: I'm a generous guy.
1: Now explain why he spends an entire year in Norway, then.
0: Uh... Refusal of the return. Easy.
1: <laughs> yeah, you're full of crap. Uh, you know that, right? You- I admit nothing. Uh-huh. So, Hoskold <laughs> sails to Norway, and the passage is quite easy. He spends the winter with relatives in Bergen, mm-hmm. uh, once more not seeking out his half-brother in any way. Right. And in the spring, he sails to the Brenna Islands, which are off the southwestern coast of Sweden, just to uh, catch up with the king's retinue on their summer travels.
0: Yeah, I mean, so, so the king has to go there as part of a law-keeping agreement, but his men, his retinue, treat the whole thing as a moving festival. There are feasts, games, drinking sessions, all kinds of entertainments. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, that brings a lot of people to the area to try to sell things or pro- provide services for these people. So an open-air market soon springs up as every merchant in the area catches on that there's money to be made in Brenna.
1: Yeah, this has to be going on whenever the king travels with a retinue, right? I mean,
0: the same. I would mean, think so, thing. right? I mean, we're we're always talking about the open-handed hospitality that's the mark of a high-status person in this culture. I mean, kings are under the highest degree of that pressure, right? Which means that when the king and his friends and followers arrive at a town,
1: there's money being spent. That's right. And in this case, it's known that Hauken has to make this trip every third summer.
0: Right. So the merchants have had
1: time to plan for this. Sure, yes. And one day, as he wanders to the booths with some of his friends, Hoskold notices a particularly fancy-looking tent set up on the edge of the market. Mm. And so he goes in and meets the well-dressed owner of the shop, Hoskold.
0: Whoa, 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 wait, you skipped the most interesting thing about this guy. Oh, what, the hat? Yeah, the hat. <laughs> oh, I was getting to that, yeah. He's wearing a Rus-style fur cap. Yeah, got a totally incongruous fur hat on. Yeah. And he says, my name's Gilly. But some people call me by a nickname. They call me Gilly the Russian. As if he has no idea why people might be calling him that. <laughs> so we're going for the early '80s
1: version of what Russian sounds like. Gilly yeah. sounds like early Spice '80s like Russian us action Russian
0: accent. I see. <laughs> I have it on good authority that is what he sounds like. He's an extra from a bad '80s movie.
1: Uh Uh-huh. Well, okay. Besides that ridiculousness, (laughs) Gilly Russ Hats, known Uh, as a wealthy importer of various luxuries. Come see me. I have many good things
0: from all over countries. (laughs) Yeah, why am I doing the Russian accent? You freaking lived in Russia.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So, Hoskold, I have to assume that Hoskold knew exactly whose shop he was entering uh, because he immediately launches into business. He says, Mm -hmm. I suppose you can offer me anything I might want to buy. I can certainly try. What
0: is it you are looking to buy?
1: Well, I wanted to purchase a slave woman, if you
0: happen to have one for sale. Ah, well, so you hope to put me on the spot by asking for something you think I haven't got. But you'd be (laughs) surprised at what I have to sell. And Gilly lifts an inner curtain in the tent and reveals a dozen women, all sitting or standing around. Mm -hmm. Presumably just waiting to be revealed. Yes. Please, please. Have a look. See if any of these women appeal to you.
1: So okay, all right. This guy is a slave trader. Yeah,
0: right. Mm-hmm. So that that Slavic voice, right? Because remember we we've talked before about how this is—you go to Slavic peoples if you want to purchase slaves in these sagas in this culture. Okay. Uh, yeah, this is the whole thing. Uh, Gilly's basically a stereotype. I mean, his his Rusland fur hat is an indication that he's probably from the markets of Kiev where slave trading is a thing. Uh, so the hat and the nickname the Russian serves as advertising for the kind of merchant he is, or at least the kind of merchant he might be. Right? He's he's basically wearing a hat that might as well have "Ask me about the slaves I have in the back room written on it. <laughs>
1: so this probably isn't a chance meeting then. Halskold knows that Gilly's likely to have slaves for sale. Yeah, right. And as Halskold looks at the women, one of them catches his eye. And she's sitting apart from the others. She doesn't seem all that interested in what's happening. And she's rather poorly dressed. Mm -hmm. But Hoskold looks her over and thinks that she's the best looking one there. Well, let's say I wanted to buy this woman. How much would
0: that run me? Ah, no. For her, you must weigh out and pay me... Yeah, lost the accent. For her. (laughs) For her. (laughs) I'm loving this. Well, for her, you must weigh out and pay me three marks of silver.
1: That's a bit steep, isn't it? Nah. It seems to me you overvalue this woman.
0: That is the price for three women. Right you are. I value this woman quite highly. So choose one of the others for a single mark, and I shall keep this one.
1: This accent is...
0: It's all over the place. It's somewhere hilarious. vaguely Eastern European, but I don't know exactly where it's from.
1: I mean, I, I just said... I'm enjoying listening to it evolve. <laughs> um, and... <laughs>
0: Uh, well, but, Gilly's uh, lived in a lot of places in his life, you see. He's not just from one place. Yes, so his he accent tends to wander about. Now of he's course. becoming Transylvanian. <laughs> yes, come see my slaves. Come buy my women.
1: Um. Uh, now, Hoskold <laughs> says, Before I answer, tell me how much money I've got in this purse. And then he holds up a purse with three marks
0: worth of silver in it. Mm-hmm. Just happened to have that on him, did he? Well, yeah. Uh, So now Gilly's licking his lips and looking greedily at this heavy bag. Now, Have we decided he's Transylvania now? No. I would not want to trick you in this transaction. The woman has a a major flaw. No. She cannot speak. No. I've tried.
1: It's insulting to the people of Romania, what you're doing right now. Oh, I see. What I was doing to the Russians before was fine. I don't think what you were doing was identifiable as a real Russian (laughs) accent. So it it exists in some... Imaginary lands. Let's
0: just so. make this guy kind of a generic scumbag. Uh, <laughs> I, I would not want to trick you in this transaction. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. <clears throat> All right, he's he's still he's still gulli the Russian. Yeah, I would not want to trick you in this transaction. The woman has a major flaw. She cannot speak. I've tried her in every language I know of, and even every accent I know of, which is a lot, and I've never <laughs> heard her say a word. It's my guess she doesn't know how to speak. <laughs>
1: Well, nevertheless, let's call it a bargain. And I'll say you acted fairly and not trying to trick me into a purchase unawares. And scene. Mm. That was long, but somewhat
0: entertaining (laughs) for unexpected reasons. Well, we do what we can. Uh, Yeah, the scene established several things, though. Uh, One is that the slave traders are active in the north. um, But that it's generally assumed that you go east to buy them, right? As we said, toward the Slavic countries which is where the word slave comes from, from Slav.
1: Mm. It also introduces a major turning point in the saga. Mm. Hoskold spends one night with this woman and gives her gifts of fine dresses that he has in his luggage.
0: Oh. um, So we have to assume that Hoskalt bought women's finery as a gift for his wife, yes? I would guess so, yes. Yeah. But, uh, and we, so- you know... Yeah, so instead of bringing home this beautiful gown to his wife, Jorun, he's instead planning to bring home an attractive slave woman wearing the gown. Well,
1: yeah, uh, she's going to be wearing the gown and carrying his child. Haskell is a very stupid man. Look, I mean, we could say a lot of things about him, and certainly people have... But we can't accuse Hoskold of overthinking things. Uh,
0: That is true. I'm also starting to
1: question the man's sobriety. (laughs) Yeah, well, the saga says he's on his way to the market,
0: so he's probably not drunk yet. He's just... Oh, and... uh, Fancy. Yeah. uh, His marriage isn't the only relationship Hoskold's risking here. uh, Because it's only the next day that Hoskold sobers up and somewhat belatedly visits King Hauken for the first time. Right, and he's yes. failed to visit in the seven or eight months he's been in Norway. hmm. And sure enough, Halkin's heard that he's in town and has been waiting for a visit. Yeah, and when Hoskuld does finally show up to offer his greetings,
1: Haukin gives him the old fish eye for a long second before saying We'd have received you well, Hoskuld, if you'd come to hail us earlier Long pause. <laughs> <laughs> but it shall be that you are welcome, even now. Mm. Hell hath no fury like a Norwegian scorned. I mean, it's not a particularly impressive confrontation. He just said welcome.
0: <laughs> no, but it's, only, it's one of only two moments of conflict we're going to get in this whole episode. I wanted to make the most of it. Is that so This is wrong? your conflict?
1: This is your big conflict? This is one of two? I wish you'd come earlier, but since you're here now, you're welcome.
0: <laughs> He's
1: mildly miffed. <laughs> yes. Ooh. Look, for those of you who enjoy the moments of reckless violence in the sagas, I promise there's a lot coming up that's going to delight your earbuds.
0: But for right now... Yeah, no, right right now, yeah, all we get is a brief snit. Uh, uh-huh. Somewhat surprisingly, Hauken is willing to let this go. Haskold yeah. uh, is welcomed back into the king's retinue, and over the summer arranges for a supply of timber to bring back to Iceland.
1: Oh, that's, yes, remember that? Hoskold came to kid lumber.
0: Well, I mean, instead, he kickstarted the plot of the saga, so that's great.
1: <laughs> well, he did that, yes. Uh, we said last time that Auth is the ultimate linchpin of this saga, the ancestor who ties almost everything together. And that's true, but if Auth had only been a brief mention in this saga, the overall plot, it really wouldn't have been diminished that much.
0: Yeah, I agree. I mean, I enjoyed her story, but it's true, we could read this saga without it. I do think the overall narrative would be poorer without it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I do too, but remember, John, we're nerds. I know, but this is different. The moment when Hoskall chooses to bring home a mute slave woman is arguably when the central narratives of this saga gear up. We're mm-hmm. still a generation away from the main action of the saga, but the family saga is now just that. We're past what amounts to a historical prelude, and we're on to the story of the families of Laxdál.
1: Yeah, this is still very much the saga of a network of powerful women. But one of the additional features of the story is several pairs of brothers, or sworn brothers, who struggle to coexist peacefully. Huskold's relationship with his brother Foot is going to be a major feature of our next episode, for example. Yeah. And because of his child with this slave woman, Huskold's sons are going to struggle with one another as well. Are we doing coming attractions now? Coming
0: attractions, foreshadowing, maybe. Yeah, is that what that was? Foreshadowing. Well, well, we were busy I mean, what foreshadowing have we the people so far. Yeah, know? yeah. Uh, well, while you were foreshadowing, Hoskuld got his lumber, spent some time soothing Hauken's feelings, and is now ready for his voyage home.
1: But before he sets sail, King Hauken wants to make sure that Hoskuld knows there are no hard feelings about the whole waited eight months to say hello thing.
0: I mean, he. ...dissed a Norwegian king and is still alive. That already seems like a good sign.
1: Yeah, but, you know, Hauken's actually a pretty reasonable guy in this saga. Mm-hmm. There doesn't seem to be any particular agenda behind it. The author just isn't deploying the Norwegian kings as antagonists trope. That's true, actually.
0: It's, it's another one of those slow-burning plot points, you know? Um, Haskold's insolent behavior allows us to see Hauken as a comparatively reasonable and patient man. Mm-hmm. That's going to pay off much later in the saga when one of Olaf's grandsons tests another Norwegian king's patience. Uh, So, okay, Uh, what are the parting gifts?
1: Well, for starters, it's a little unclear, but it seems like Halken's giving the lumber to Hoskald free of charge as a gift. Ooh,
0: that's a very nice gift.
1: Sure, but I did say for starters. He (laughs) also gives Hoskald a gold ring from his own arm, and then gives him a sword.
0: Now, that is quite a goodie bag. Especially because uh, he hasn't done I hasn't know. done anything. He's kind of a lousy king's man. I mean, he just kind of shows up when he feels like it, stops by when he has nothing else to do, yeah. and then leaves as soon as he's finished shopping.
1: One could argue the whole thing seems a little forced on the part of the author.
0: It does. Again, I think the point here is to show the forbearance of the Norwegian kings in the face of some provocation from an Icelander.
1: Icelandic rudeness?
0: Well, I think what we're seeing is, again, it's setting up something that's going to happen later on when Olaf's grandson, uh, Kjartan, is going to uh, do some things that really test the patience of another king. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but, again, we'll we'll get to that in a few episodes. But just to know that this is not an isolated incident. Um, now, Haskell's going to go home with all these marks of the king's favor, right? A ship full of lumber, a gold ring on his arm, a sword at his belt. The saga tells us that he's a highly regarded man in both countries— so all of this carries significance back in Iceland as evidence of his continued status as the king's man. Mm-hmm. Of course, he does still have to explain the other addition to his belongings. Yeah, it's true. A ring on the arm may be quite continental, but a surplus woman dressed in Jorun's clothes is a little hard to explain. hoskuld well, has got some explaining to do. Part 6 I do not know her name. So, Haskold's arrival in Iceland is given in what we're going to say is some really unnecessary detail. That's not an opinion. I mean, it is, it is an opinion. It's my opinion. But I'm willing to fight on this one.
1: Oh, yeah. Without question, yeah. We get the description of his landing, uh, the boathouse he builds for the winter, the unloading of the cargo, uh, the construction of a couple of sheds even – And, of Mm -hmm. course, the transport of that timber that he had uh, left so long ago to fetch uh, all of that, the transport of that timber to his property. All of it is given to us in loving and completely unnecessary detail. Mm
0: -hmm. Unless. Unless. Well, I mean, I've already said it it, it is unnecessary, so obviously I'm full of crap here. Obviously. Um, I mean, that goes without saying. I've always said that. Thank you. But we did just say that Hoskull is about to do something colossally stupid here. Oh uh, yeah. presenting his wife Yoren with their new slave woman, dressed in Yoren's gown and pregnant with Hoscold's child. Well, hold hold on a second there. Uh, yeah, it's it's not Yoren's gown anymore. She, as far as Yoren knows, that gown was never hers. I'm just saying, narratively, we our horizon of expectations includes the knowledge that that gown was meant for Yoren, unless Hoscold just originally. carries extra gowns around. But Jorn's Um, never seen it. She doesn't know. Well, fair enough. Fair enough. So my question is, could we see this unnecessary detail as a way of building suspense?
1: Um, I mean, we could. You know, even in a culture where both slave owning and concubines are accepted, what Hoskold's doing would be recognized as a boneheaded move. Uh, But I guess it depends on whether we think the reader's sympathies are meant to be with Hoskold or maybe not at this point. And um,
0: I, for one, don't think that we're meant to sympathize with Haskell that much. Right. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, let's let's put aside the obvious problems with buying and then bedding a mute woman, which is a lot to ignore. And Mm. I recognize that. Uh, But even if it's accepted practice in a culture for a man to have sex with a slave, it's not a given that his wife is going to be happy about it.
1: Yeah. So um, what we're saying here is this is a situation that calls for tact. And care on the part of the slave-owning definitely, Definitely. Uh, So, uh, in other words, Haskold's screwed here.
0: Yes, definitely.
1: (laughs) Uh, Are you doing Haskold's part? I I believe I was. I was giving him my normal voice that sounds very much like me. Very good.
0: Uh, It's amazing how people in Iceland sound like you. It's incredible. Uh, So, Haskold rides home to his farm with a few of his friends, and Jorun greets them all, and then says, So... Who's the woman accompanying you? Well, uh, you're probably going
1: to think I'm joking here, but uh, I don't actually know her name.
0: Uh-huh. But given the stories that I've heard about your relations with her, you must have spoken to her enough to at least ask her name.
1: Mm. That's, a, that's an interesting line. <laughs> right. Yeah, that it is.
0: is. <laughs> like, uh, uh, but uh, what we could take from that is, you're uh, in... Joran's not happy, is she? Yeah, I mean, we're, we're really, we're getting into old sitcom tropes here. Uh, except this isn't a wacky misunderstanding. Haskold uh, really did buy himself an Irish woman for sexual companionship. Yep. I, uh, I don't know what Mr. Roper would think about this, but it's uh, pretty clear Joran's myth, <laughs> Mr. Roper. Um, Haskold explains himself, by which I mean,
1: uh, he tells her the whole story of his infidelity and his um, liaisons with this mute slave.
0: See, it's, it sounds bad when you say it like that. Um, accurate, but bad. Well, Halskold
1: has a very specific personality. Uh, he he's does. one of the more interesting character profiles we get early in the saga. It doesn't mean we have to like him, uh, mm-hmm. but he's interesting. Um, yeah. Are we uh, Are we going to talk about him in that summons to the thing thing that you've introduced into Luxella saga?
0: Um, not this episode. We, we can uh, do him next time, I think. Um, I prep someone else. Okay.
1: Okay, well, I, I imagine I know who that is, but... Uh, so, <laughs> the point is, Hoskold spills the beans about buying a concubine
0: for himself. Uh-huh. Uh, and unsurprisingly, his explanation cuts very little ice with Jorun. Mm-hmm. I have no intention of wrangling with some slave woman you decided to bring back from Norway. <laughs> I doubt she knows her place with her betters, all the more so because she is deaf and mute. Yeah. And somehow, a little
1: glimmer of an idea that maybe things aren't going well here manages to penetrate the <laughs> solid ivory of Hoskold's skull. Mm-hmm. And, and finally, he says nothing more about it. Yeah. He sleeps with his wife every night from then on and avoids being alone with this mute slave woman. There's a brief peace at the farm as a result of this, but it's broken toward the end of winter when the mute woman gives birth to a bouncing baby boy. Mm-hmm. Now, Hoskold names this boy Olaf and watches with secret pride as he grows to become an exceptionally capable young boy.
0: Yet in the meanwhile, uh, Jorun is increasingly angry about the presence of her husband's concubine. Uh, after a while, she confronts Hoskuld, accusing the slave woman of doing no work. And Hoskuld, showing off those remarkable people skills once more, decides to make the woman Jorun's maid. <laughs> yes. Yeah.
1: It's kind of amazing that Hoskuld's managed to get anywhere in Iceland. I mean, this is famously yeah. a place where social skills matter a lot, especially on a small farm. He's so tone deaf; it's hard to believe that he isn't doing it on purpose.
0: Unless, uh, unless really, unless he is
1: doing it on purpose. Oh, okay. Why? How? What's the cunning plan here?
0: I, I got nothing. <laughs> of course, you I don't. think he's a fool. But it's if I ridiculous. have to, str- if I had to stretch for a rationale. Um, we could, I guess we could see this as an attempt to assert his primacy in his marriage. Mm, Establishing his right to do as he pleases in his own home with his own slave. I mean, Joran complains, but ultimately she doesn't seem to have the ability to actually send the woman away. I mean, maybe. That's a stretch, but maybe. Well, I said it was, yeah. And it doesn't work out anyway, because ultimately Joran is going to gain her point. Yeah.
1: Although, you know, it...
0: uh, Just ignore everything I just said. I, I guess, I guess, uh, yeah.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, it, it fits some of the facts, but the overall characterization of Hoskald in this story is a guy who doesn't seem to think through his actions. Mm-hmm. Uh, he responds to his id, if you will.
0: He, he acts on his wants rather than by logic. Oh, I agree, yeah. Uh, and we'll have more to say about that when we do get to his character profile. Yeah. But for now, as Hoskold settles into farm life and his wife seethes, the slave woman spends time raising her young son.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And she often takes him off into the hayfields where she's away from Joran and, more
1: importantly, near a remote stream so that no one can hear them. Right. So we all know she can talk, right? I mean, we do uh, because we've read stories
0: and we know how these things go. <laughs> but Haskell doesn't because he's not mm. as well read. Yeah. Uh, we've established that Hoskall is not exactly Mr. Perceptive. Yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, this is the kind of revelation that most readers can probably see coming, like I said. Mm. But uh, Hoskild is out in the fields one day, and he's actually quite surprised to hear voices down by the stream. And it's not just one voice. He's hearing two voices. One is the voice of his
0: son Olaf, and the other is a woman's voice. Yeah, I mean, this is a pretty threadbare trope. Uh, but realizing that the allegedly mute slave woman can talk is a complete shock to Hoskald.
1: Yeah, he approaches them and says, uh, look, look. There's no point in pretending any longer that you can't talk.
0: Are you sure? You're not overly
1: bright. I believe she's supposed to be Irish, so let's kick it up a notch there.
0: Oh, really? I gotta gotta, gotta try to offend Irish people now? Yes. Uh, I mean, you are of their stock, so it's gonna be okay. (laughs) Uh, Many generations removed. Uh, I'm a a Queen's Irish. I'm not a... I don't speak the Queen's English. Uh, Are you sure? You're not overly bright. Uh, (laughs) Now, she agrees that he's tumbled her clever ruse, uh, and they sit together on the grass to talk. If you wish to know my name, it's Melcorka.
1: Hmm. Well, tell me about your
0: family, then. Well, my father's Mjercartan. He's a king in Ireland. I was taken captive there some years ago when I was fifteen.
1: You certainly can keep a secret. seems to me that you have concealed a noble birth for too long. Yeah, and you're not underplaying it. He's just not mad about the whole thing. No, it's just the opposite. He's apparently pretty pleased with himself. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, And I wonder, it's, it's not really clear whether he's happy about having found out Melkorka's secret or about finding out that he's got an Irish princess as a slave or the uh-huh. fa- maybe the fact that his illegitimate son turns out to be descended from an Irish royal family, but... Yeah. He did identify I think that last her one, by the way. <laughs> yeah, but I want to point out that he did identify her based on her look, right? Mm-hmm. Even though she was dressed in rags, he spotted her in the slavehold um, as right. a remarkable character, maybe just for her looks, but he sp- mm-hmm. he spotted something in her and now it's paying off.
0: Well, and he does right dress her in finery, which is not yeah. normal behavior for a new slave that you've purchased, right? He right. he recognizes something of her bearing of her nobility.
1: Yeah. Uh, Which doesn't really speak to his skill. It speaks to the the luck and the quality of Melkorka rather Mm than um, um, Hoskold's sensibilities.
0: Right. Right. And what we're left with is that uh, Hoskold's congratulating himself on making a series of fairly cruel decisions. Uh, From a modern perspective, absolutely. Yes. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Uh, And now that Hoskold knows this bit of news, how do we think he's going to handle himself?
1: Oh, well, he runs to Joran and announces proudly that his slave woman concubine is, in fact, an Irish princess
0: and maybe just a little bit better than his wife. Oh, yes, he does. Uh, (laughs) I do hope Hoskold wears tasty shoes because there is no foot too big for him to stick in his mouth. Right. Uh, Thomas Bredsdorf says that Hoskold shows a consistent level of, this is a quote, Psychological perspicacity at this point. Pers- psychological
1: perspicacity, mm-hmm. uh, right. meaning which I could barely say. Uh, meaning uh, he has none.
0: Right, none. Uh, he yeah. honestly seems to be unaware that his wife might not greet this news with rapturous joy. With what? rapturous joy. Rapturous joy,
1: I see. No, uh, one might say that she's actually more than a little miffed at this mm-hmm. revelation. Uh, she just says coldly that there's no way to know whether there's any truth in the claim, and that in any case, she has no use for people of dubious origin, such as this slave <laughs> woman. Um, again, this is all understandable, uh, but it's a little rough for that. Um, but it's a little rough that no one seems to think of maybe doing something about it, because mm-hmm. the news that Melkorka's an Irish princess doesn't seem to prompt any kind of a rethink about the whole enslavement thing,
0: which... No, know. yeah, not at all. Uh, meanwhile, Hoskild continues to live in his own oblivious world, uh, starts treating Melkorka more kindly than before. Uh, I mean, not, you know, not freeing her levels of kindness, wow. but maybe a bit more warmth in his voice when he speaks to her. What a guy. He's a mensch. Uh, unfortunately, the tensions between Joran and Melkorka finally boil over one night. Mm-hmm. Uh, Melkorka is helping Jorin to get her socks off, which is the sort of thing she's being forced to do all the time. Right? Um, Jorin is looking for any kind of demeaning, menial task she can find for her. Yeah. But this time, Yorin grabs the socks and smacks Melkorka with them.
1: Mm-hmm. Now, slapping a princess with a dirty sock,
0: that's pretty <laughs> bad behavior, even in medieval Iceland. Right. And uh, in other news, slapping the princess with a sock is not a euphemism in any way. Uh, are we sure about that? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I haven't done my research. Fair point. Uh, so if, <laughs> if, I mean, if it is a euphemism, I'd like to know what for. Uh, so the thing about hitting someone with a pair of socks is to know what to do next. <laughs> Yorin doesn't really have a follow up. She just kind of sits there. Melkorka, on the other hand, doesn't hesitate at all. She jumps to her feet and punches Yorin in the face. She, uh, yeah, she really hauls
1: off on her. And yeah. this is one of the rare examples of direct violence by a woman in the sagas, especially mm-hmm. uh, violence uh, of a woman on another woman. Uh, you also nose... about
0: a slave taking up violence against her yeah. mistress. Yeah, I mean, there's yeah. a lot of
1: layers here. Um, of course, uh, Melkorka is of a higher status than right. Yorin, and that's what's being asserted here. Um, Yorin's nose starts bleeding immediately, and the two of them square up for a full-on brawl. But Hoskuld hears the commotion and runs into the bedroom and separates these combatants. Mm-hmm. Uh, but blood has been spilled now. And Joran is done with having a servant slash Irish princess slash concubine in the house.
0: Slash boxer. Uh, <laughs> once again, Hoskuld uh, catches on way after everyone else. But even he picks up on a certain atmosphere now. Yeah. Uh, and arranges for Melkorka and Olaf to move to a separate farm further up in the valley. Why wouldn't he have he, done that right away? I know. And to be clear, he's also not giving her her freedom. Right. Let's not get too crazy. Uh, she's still a servant of his. She's still a thrall. But as mm-hmm. the mother of his son, she has a certain status. Right. And he doesn't want Jorn to kill her. Or or vice versa. Right. That too. Uh, so Olaf grows up on his father's property, but not in his father's house. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, as he grows up, everyone can see that he's shaping up to be one of the best men in the district, mm-hmm. uh, even at a very young age. Right, He's got a lot of potential. His half-siblings, Hoskold's uh, legitimate children, are always aware of him, but because of the animosity of their mothers, they are kept apart. And as that's we'll right. see, that bad blood is going to be carried on into the next generation.
1: Yeah, uh, but for now, that's where we're leaving off. Uh, we've mm-hmm. got... A very, very young Olaf, so he's probably, you know, two or three years old here, Mm -hmm. but very promising. And we have Hoskold having established a love nest for his baby mama and uh, that wonderful son Olaf. Right. So far, this is a
0: saga in search of a story. Yeah, it's not—I mean, it's not bad, though. This is a story with some room to breathe in. Well, it's got room to drive a Mack truck through. But this pace really does pick up, folks. I promise you— Uh, Our next episode will have more humor and an actual body count.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, in terms of what we count for body count, I'm wondering, Mm -hmm. has anyone died in the saga yet that we can count, really?
0: I think the sock slap is about as bad as the violence has gotten so far. Uh, Yeah. Give it time, though. Soon the blood will flow like spice, which famously (laughs) must flow.
1: It must, must. Uh, Well, that'll be fun. I can't wait.
0: Uh, Muad'Dib. Anyway. Uh, we should wrap this section up and move on to the summons. Okay, let's uh, summons... Who are we summonsing? Summons to the thing! your curtains, daughter! So, Melkorka this time. We've barely gotten to know her yet, but uh, I know. Honestly, yeah. I mean, and we're not going to learn a tremendous amount more about her in the saga. Uh, Mm -hmm. The only other chapters where she plays an important part are really dominated by her son. So this is our best chance to talk about her.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, even though she's not in the saga very much, uh, saga scholars love talking about Melkor. Yes, they do. Um, so what do you want to talk about here? Do you want to talk about the Irish connection? Because that's usually yeah, the topic.
0: I mean, we can start there. Yeah, absolutely. I also want to go over her pretense of being mute, but we can start with Ireland. Oh, okay. Yeah, I mean, that's a,
1: actually a good place to start because I, I I have a rune sack question for this episode oh. from uh, from Gisli, uh, which is asking us to talk in a bit more detail about the Irish in Iceland during the Settlement Age mm-hmm. and how all things Irish are presented in the sagas. Uh, Gisli suggests that Laxdala Saga seems like a pretty good place to do this, as there mm. seem to be
0: rather many Irish connections here, and I couldn't agree more. Well, Gizly's right, and hello, Gizly, thanks. Uh, if you're interested in Irishness in the sagas, this is a great one to start with. Uh, William yeah. Sayers calls this so- the saga most directly interested in the experience of Irish bloodlines in Iceland. Yeah. I'm not positive I agree, since there are a handful of sagas hmm. that might make that claim, but this is definitely near the top. Yeah, I mean, we'll get a,
1: a more direct look at Irishness from the Icelandic point of view in a few chapters, but uh, Melkorka certainly gives us a chance to look at that now. So sure. uh, I think it's a good, good opportunity.
0: Yeah, and I, I think we've hit on the Ireland-Iceland or the Celtic connection a few times in the podcast, but never in a sustained conversation. Right, yeah. I mean, the the Irish do come
1: up now and then as minor characters in the sagas, um, and we've seen a few Irish communities in the Settlement Age Iceland Mm -hmm. in our journey through the family sagas. Uh, One of them that comes to mind is the Irish community set up at the beginning of Kjaldasinga Saga. Mm -hmm. Um, That community was distinctive in part because they were Irish, but also mainly because they were Christians, but they did all gather together in one area.
0: Yep. Uh, And you think about the number of Hebridians we've seen as well, right? which is also uh, lumped in with that. Uh, Of course, it's also well-known by now that uh, around 60% of women in the settlement age were of Celtic origin. Yeah, and something like
1: 20% of men, right?
0: Yeah, that's right. Um, It's somewhere around there. Uh, It's a pretty large Irish or at least Celtic contingent flowing into Iceland, uh, Mm -hmm. whether they're coming in as slaves or as freemen or as upper-class individuals who seek good farmland and opportunity. Um, Yeah. uh, Think about uh, – how deep-minded's grandchildren are all absolutely hybridian, right, or at least half hybridian. Mm-hmm. Uh, but whatever the size, of the population, and their social class, we can say with a degree of certainty that any Celtic language or customs they brought with them were overwhelmed and eventually absorbed or eliminated by the dominant Norse culture. True. Yeah. Which makes it very
1: hard to trace uh, right. without the, without the genetic information. It's really hard to trace the influences there. But, uh, that doesn't mean that, uh, scholars haven't worked a lot to try to uncover mm-hmm. various areas of Celtic influence in, in place names uh, in Iceland, in actual old Icelandic, mm-hmm. uh, or even in the literary culture of medieval Iceland.
0: Absolutely. I mean, this is a conversation that's been going on for a long time in the scholarship.
1: Uh, One of the other aspects of that Celtic presence on the island seems to be an ongoing dislike or distrust of Ireland and those of Irish blood. Mm. Uh, Sometimes that comes from a sort of proto-nationalism probably of the 13th century, but sometimes the number of Irish people on the island seems at odds with the writer's anti-Irish leanings, right? I mean, slaves, freedmen, women, even chieftains might have one or two Celtic parents. Like young Olaf. Yeah, or Kari Samundersen in Njalsaga, Mm -hmm. whose family is originally from the Hebrides. Yeah. I know we're supposed to be talking about Melkorka, but I do I I, want to go back to that question of Irish influence on the Icelandic literary tradition I mentioned, uh, maybe just for a moment, if that's okay. You know, I love a good digression. Mm hmm. Yeah, so there are a lot of articles, uh, theses, and talks out there on this subject. In fact, Gisli included one in his email to me uh, about this. Uh, But a lot of them, a lot of these talks and, and essays, they they explore the origins of the sagas themselves mm-hmm. and the possible influences that come from the British Isles and from Ireland specifically. Uh, almost as if the origins of saga literature is a British island thing that uh, is brought over to yeah. Iceland. Now, other scholars are looking To be looking clear, for we're analog- not embracing that point of view. No, not necessarily, no. Um, Now, other scholars look for analogous literary motifs found in both Irish and Icelandic literature. Mm -hmm. And among the more recent of these is actually an article by my good friend Lindy Brady in Scandinavian Studies called An Irish Sovereignty Motif in Laxdala Saga.
0: Well, I mean, that does sound relevant. Doesn't it, though?
1: Yeah. Um, Lindy does a nice job of drawing connections between literary tropes in Laxdala Saga and the Irish story called The Adventures of the Sons of um, and sorry for all those who speak <laughs> Irish out there. Um, it's a hard one for me.
0: God bless you for trying, though. Uh, so how yeah. does that one turn out?
1: I mean, I think the connections that she suggests are pretty convincing, uh, but more interesting is the conversation in that article about how the Icelandic author actually uses the Irish sovereignty motif that would have been familiar to saga audiences. Mm-hmm. Um, he uses that in Laxdala Saga to actually promote a distinctly Icelandic perspective that rejects the concept of king- kingship.
0: Excellent. Uh, and getting back to our summons now, the thing about Malkorka is that she sits so comfortably in both traditions. Yes. Uh, Torvi Tolinius talks about the thematic parallels between Melkorka's story and the story of Aslag in Ragnar's saga. Mm. So she actually does have these parallels in Icelandic literature as well. Both women are abducted. Both are young princesses who have been taken into slavery. Because of their great beauty, both are desired by an aristocrat with whom each has a son or sons and to whom she later proves the nobility of her birth. Uh, mm-hmm. Both are uh, hidden by uh, ugly clothes, uh, by filth, in order to hide their aristocratic uh, face and their aristocratic body. In essence, what we have here is a story matrix that knits together Irish and Icelandic mythic and literary traditions.
1: Yeah, yeah. And what's interesting there is I think we could probably go into early Celtic literature And find similar stories, uh, plenty of parallels, um, and probably not just in Celtic literature, but in Mm -hmm. literature across the world.
0: Right. And of course, we're limited here to the literary survivals. um, Right. Right. The, The oral traditions may have had a number of other things that would help to flesh out this matrix.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, obviously, there's there's a lot there, um, and uh, I want to apologize to Gisli that we can't uh, flesh it all out here in <laughs> uh, in this brief section, because we need to talk about Melkorka specifically. Um, mm-hmm. John, tell me, why have we summoned this, uh, this fine young lady to the thing? Uh, in some ways, the Irish story plays out more completely in Olaf's life than in Melkorka's, mm-hmm. um, and I think we'll probably end up dedicating an entire summons to Olaf at some point. Uh, he's going to recede into the background in our next episode, but I promise we're not done with him just yet.
0: Yeah, no, for now, we can just say that his uh, Olaf's uh, connection to Ireland is going to be explored in detail. And in doing so, the author builds up a sense of the links that still bound Irish-descended Icelanders to their ancestral home.
1: Yeah, yeah, which is some of the stuff that Lindy Brady is exploring in, in her article. Uh, but I think worth noting, Olaf is also bilingual. That's yeah. that's an important thing that's uh, kind of fun in this saga. His mother teaches him Irish as well as Norse so that she's going to have someone to talk to in her own tongue. And also, right. presumably, he can go back to Ireland and speak sure. to his uh, his family.
0: Yeah, uh, and bringing it back to Melkorka, that's a nice detail, you know? It adds verisimilitude to the story. Melkorka teaching her child to speak her language is like... Remember, we said in the first episode that this saga makes a lot of sense as a series of immigrant stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is one of those moments of adjusting to or resisting the cultural expectations of a new home. Yeah, which
1: is particularly true for the immigrant story of someone like Mil-Korka, Uh being brought to Iceland as a purchased slave. It's obviously a very different experience than the refugees from Norway had.
0: Of course, yeah. And arriving in a new land as the slave of a man who has already forced sex on you and whose baby you're carrying is going to make this even more complicated. Yeah. Uh, Melkorga's traumas begin with her abduction in a raid when she was 15 and just keep going. right? That. that uh, so, of course, she isn't going, going to necessarily embrace Iceland as her new home and want to adjust to that culture. Uh, but her traumas remain peripheral to the story. The author never really makes much of her experiences, uh, not even right. one she's brought in as a mistress by Huskald. I mean, the story is there, but like so many things in the sagas, it's just there. It's significant mm-hmm. if you decide it is, but the text doesn't insist on it. No,
1: or, or dwell on it at all. We should also say that this is an archetype of its own, right? Which part is? The the Irish princess. Oh, right okay. the, the, the literary connections to Irish literature are one part of Melkorka's story, but we can find descendants of Irish kings and warlords in a few sagas, and it sometimes seems like Irish princesses, well... They're a dime a dozen in Norse literature.
0: <laughs> but Melkorka is <laughs> not so cheaply bought. She's not just a motif.
1: No, I mean, she's attested outside of this saga, which is kind of cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, not much, but she is mentioned in La Namabok in passing. Um, and there, the story is more or less a rough draft of the one we get in this version, which is pretty common for the relationship between La Namabok and the sagas that uh, it right. out.
0: Right, those Those, those saga kernels. Uh, but yeah. neither version of the story provides us with anything about Makoka's life between her abduction and her sale to Hosskult. Right, We don't know how many right. years ago this was. We don't know how long she's been traveling, how long she's been in captivity. I said I wanted to mm-hmm. think about her decision to hide her identity by wanting to be mute, but even then, all we really have to go on is what we've seen.
1: Yeah. So, uh, you're, what do you what do you want to say about that?
0: You know, there's, the thing is, there's nothing like a good disability narrative, which uh, is exactly what this is. Nothing like is a good though? disability narrative. <laughs> yes, you're right. Yes. Uh that's right, exactly right. is using a single characteristic to mimic disability. She just refuses to speak.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's a feigned disability. Um, so the, the corpus of Old Norse Lit actually includes people with various disabilities, as we've seen throughout mm-hmm. the, 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 our journey here, um, including deafness and muteness. Right, uh, right. Remember, we saw one a while back in the Thouter of Thorstein Bull's leg. Uh, yep. Thorstein's mother was unable to speak and used runes to communicate with her brother.
0: Sure. And in those other cases, the impaired person generally uses workarounds or prosthetics to communicate. We don't mm-hmm. get anything like that here. Melkorka is mute not in the sense of a disability, but as a choice. Uh, Gilly the Russian, who's not the shiniest nickel in the bank, says of her that she doesn't know how to speak. But it becomes Mm -hmm. clear pretty quickly that there's no cognitive problem. Melkorka learns her new new duties very quickly. She shows herself to be intelligent. Her lack of speech or of workarounds to achieve nonverbal communication clues us in right away that she's choosing muteness. Uh, possibly as a defense mechanism, which is understandable. But again, the saga doesn't give us enough to work out her motives with any confidence.
1: Right. Now, obviously, if she's mute and foreign, her ability to communicate might be limited because of a language barrier in addition to Mm -hmm. an
0: impairment. So that's possible. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, But narrative convention almost demands that this woman is hiding a secret. Absolutely. Uh, And given that she's repeatedly described as mute, but acts as someone choosing not to speak, there's a whole other set of narrative inferences to be made.
1: Mm -hmm. Which brings us back to Melkorka's similarities to, say, the Cinderella story of Auslag Sigurdstalter. Exactly. I mean, her her status as a thrall
0: or as a slave, that that also bears on this, right? Right, sure. And I realize this is something that only I may be interested in, so I'll be quick about it. She's using a lack of communication either to protect herself or to sidestep the shame of being a princess brought so low. If she doesn't identify Hmm. herself, then that shame doesn't accrue to her family or to herself. Uh, But remember we talked last time in Aud's summons about the stratified socioeconomic system of Iceland, right? The caste system in Iceland is already primed to discount a thrall, especially a female thrall, uh, that she can be treated as socially unimportant. So Mm -hmm. Melkorka's chosen camouflage is excellent. Uh, Her feigned inability to speak fits in with the class prejudices of Scandinavian aristocrats. Uh, of course she's mute. Of course she's unable to speak, right? She's too simple, too low to speak anyway, or to be heard if she does speak. Uh, as we learn when she's discovered with her son Olaf, language and communication are actually very important to her, right? She wants not only to communicate with her son, but to communicate with him in her language. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, and it serves as an act of subversion, or at least maybe of de- of defiance, which I, mm. I think is is a part and parcel of what she's doing here. Yes. Um, we can read it the way that you've suggested, but at the same time, um, as a, a, an Irish royal, um, she's, she knows that the people that she's dealing with are beneath her and not worthy <laughs> to speak to her, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, I like that aspect of it, um, as well. And she's, she's clearly a very proud and defiant person. Mm-hmm. And adding to that, teaching her son Irish provides him with a connection to their shared heritage, and sets up part of Olaf's story and identity later on. That's narratively going to be very important,
0: right? Uh, so we can read her silence as secrecy, as defiance, mm-hmm. as defense mechanism, as shame, as linguistic isolation. Right? There's a lot of potential ways to read Melkorka.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And that's why so many people have spent time talking about her. Mm-hmm. Um, as we said at the very beginning of this uh, summons, Melkorka doesn't have a lot of play in the text. In fact, um, what we've said about here is a lot longer uh, and <laughs> more detailed than anything you're going to see in the saga about her. Right. And yet she's such a fascinating character that she attracts a lot of attention. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, it's not surprising that uh, we can go on and on about her. Yeah, but, uh, but John, it's uh you know it's getting late. The episode's getting long. Mm-hmm. Um, we could probably wrap this up if you want. Sure. Um, you want to do a, a quick rune sec that's not related to uh, Melkorka or the Irish question? Maybe a quickie. Okay. Uh, let me pull it up here if I can actually find it. I had it. Oh, there it is. Okay. So, yeah, I have a question here from Sam uh, through our Gmail, Podcast at gmail.com. And he says, and this is an important one. I need to share this with you because I think um, um, it's one of the more poignant messages we've received. Mm-hmm. Um, he opens with this: uh, "I love your work, and I think that Andy should have won the last quarter court." Accord. And, and <laughs> just because you know, Sam, I think you're right about that, uh-huh. and you might be one of our better listeners out there. Uh, he's certainly in the minority. Uh huh. Um, he he says the only possible explanation. For Andy's loss is that John must have somehow hacked the vote counting software, <laughs> um, and we need to look into that. And I, frankly, I think we—I did bring that up before, and I, I think he might be on something.
0: I think it flies in the face of what we all know about my ability with computers. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> unless yeah, there's an really... actual ballot box somewhere that I can stuff with Post-it notes, I think we're safe.
1: I think yeah, uh, yeah. So um, that's that's where my investigation has uh, has led. Is yeah. that you are incapable yeah. of uh, <laughs> hacking anything. Uh-huh. <laughs> now, uh, the, the email continues. On a more serious note, uh, he wants to know, were Icelandic homesteads ever the victim of Viking raids in the sagas? Oh. We've seen Icelanders abroad fall prey to Vikings, like Helgi and Grimm in saga, and we've seen Viking raids on homesteads in Scandinavia and Northern Europe, Ail, uh, S- Scott Le Grimson, for example. Uh, but he says, I can't remember any Viking raids taking place in Iceland or even in Icelandic waters. Did that kind of thing happen, and saga authors simply didn't put it in their writing? And if so, why would they neglect a potentially excellent plot device? Or was Iceland <laughs> simply too poor and too out of the way to be worth the effort? So, that is Sam's question, yeah.
0: and I think we have uh, we have some things to say about that. That's a good question. Uh, thank yeah. you. Uh, so, one of the things we have to think about, uh, yes, first of all, yes, the short version is that there are um, raids, or at least raid-like behaviors uh, going on in Iceland.
1: That's the thing, John. We need to... Uh, I think if we want to answer this question properly, we need to think about terminology here, mm-hmm. right? If you're talking about Viking raids, traditional Viking raids that you're... Th- you know, when you think of Vikings uh, storming the countryside, um, the answer, I think, would be no. That doesn't happen. Organized mm-hmm. raids uh, on Iceland are simply, like he says, a little too far out of the way. Right. However... I think you can handle the however here because I know, I know you're thinking <laughs> the same thing I'm thinking.
0: I mean, what we can say, there's two different uh, behaviors, right, that we can talk about here. One yeah. is um, outlaws, right? Uh, in yeah. Erebitra Saga, for example, at the end of Erebitra Saga, we have this man, ospak who builds up a small army of outlaws who begin mm-hmm. raiding local farms. Um, we saw um, in Horth Saga. Right, a massive uh, band of robbers who begin raiding farms, yep. or even uh, raids his own brother's brother-in-law's farms. Uh, That's right. But that behavior and, uh, is categorized as worthy of outlawry. Right, it's the yep. behavior of a criminal. It's not treated mm-hmm. as a raid. That's right, and it,
1: even in Eirbyggis saga. Um, the, the the whole Ospak scene, which is just fantastic uh, mm-hmm. stuff, uh, at the end of that saga, um, Ospak and his crew they are they are outlawed from their territory. They they set up shop in Strandir and attract other Vikings who have been outlawed and are are seeking refuge in Iceland. Um, and then they continue raiding, and what they do mm-hmm. is described in terms exactly like what you think of a Viking raid might be. Right. Um, and in fact, in the end, when they are uh, finally taken care of by Snorri Goethe and his cohort, uh, they are described as Vikings when those yes. Vikings were put down. Um, yes. So that, that term is actually in the text to to qualify who and what they are. But it means robbers. It means raiders. It means pirates.
0: Right. And, of course, that, that, that also gets us into a translation issue, which is that the, yeah. uh, the words that are being used may be rendered in English in various ways. Um, and, of course, there are multiple words as well being used in Old Norse. And so yeah. it's not it's, – it can be tricky sometimes to work out what the uh, opinion of the author is about the behavior that is being described. But yeah. uh, certainly, usually, if an Icelander is conducting raid-like behaviors in Iceland, that's cause for outlawry and it's treated differently. Yeah. But the other thing we can think about is um, when people use uh, sort of sea uh, entrances to a property in order to conduct a, uh, an attack, right? an act of feud vengeance. Uh, mm-hmm. which is going to use some of the same tactics as a Viking raid, uh, right? Um, sailing up, hopefully, uh, quietly, um, leaping out of the ship very quickly, rushing in and attacking. Uh, and we see that happen in a few of the sagas. But again, it's not treated as a raid. It's treated as, it's treated as an act consistent with the behaviors of feud vengeance. That's right, yeah. I think there is sufficient uh, behaviors that we can say, yes, Raid behaviors happen in Iceland, but Mm -hmm. no, they are not usually categorized as raids in the way that we think of Vikings as raiding. Right. Now, there is a really
1: just in kind of looking up some stuff for this particular question. um, I found a a really interesting example that sounds a lot more like a traditional Viking raid, um, except it happened in the 17th century. Um, around 1627. <laughs> okay. And it wasn't uh, your traditional Scandinavian Vikings attacking Iceland. It was a uh, a bunch of pirates from northwest Africa that really? arrived on the shores of Iceland and raided several farms and actually gathered up uh, something like uh, around 400 people um, as slaves. And they took In them the down to... Century. Yes. Wow. And they took them down to Algiers and sold them in slave markets. And uh, one of the really fascinating things about this, obviously, because it comes from the 17th century, is there are a bunch of records of this and mm-hmm. stories told about it. And if you are interested in this story, not only are there a lot of records online available, but uh, you can go to your local bookshop online or, uh, well, probably not in person. Uh, but look for the, the book called The Travels of Reverend Olavr Ailsen. Uh, It's subtitled The Story of the Barbary Corsair Raid on Iceland in 1627. It's a record of Reverend Oliver's travels and his experiences as a captive as he traveled across Europe, coming home from Algiers, uh, trying to get ransom from uh, the king of Denmark to pay for all the people that were captured um, and then his journey home. Um, And there's lots of other good materials in there. So very cool stuff.
0: Put that title in the show notes. I want
1: to read that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I'll put it in there. Nice. But yes, it's a really strange example because why are they Mm -hmm. sailing all the way up to Iceland? Um, Right. I plan to read the book to find out.
0: Uh, Yeah. I mean, that's – I'd want to know more about that because that seems like – were they just on their way back from somewhere else?
1: (laughs) I mean, back on their way from somewhere else through Iceland? I mean, you know – uh, blown off course. I don't, not? I don't really think so. But uh, yeah, there were there were two, apparently two <laughs> different groupings of, of raids uh, to collect Icelanders um, and sell them um, in Algiers. So really
0: fascinating. Presumably, Presumably, Algerians on their way back from uh, Newfoundland. Yes. Um, and I uh, thought they'd stop by. Yeah. Uh, there you go. There you go. Excellent. Uh well that's a great question though. I I wanna now I wanna read this book and revisit this. Yeah, exactly. Not exactly Viking, but uh but a raid nonetheless yeah.
1: and a fascinating story. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Um Hey, uh before we go, Andy, riddle me this. Uh-huh. If our listeners wanted to get in touch with us to tell us how they felt about this episode, how might they do that? Well, do we really want to hear how they felt about the episode?
1: Yes. If you want to get in touch with us, <laughs> <laughs> to tell us how you felt about the various accents and the wandering accents of this episode. Oh, no. You can, you can email us. I, re- I rescind my invitation. Oh, ah, okay. Uh, you can email us uh, uh, via Gmail at sagathingpodcast at gmail.com. Or if you are a social media type person, we are on Facebook and Instagram at sagathingpodcast. And you can also follow us up and drop us a line on Twitter where we are at sagathingpod.
0: Right. Or you can sew a message onto a pair of socks and mail them to one of us. We'll be happy to pummel each other with knotted up socks next time we see one another. And we might even read the messages while we're at it. Please don't send us used socks, at least. All right, just send me socks.
1: He wants the used ones. I want the new ones.
0: Oh, I don't.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And Hmm. uh, I know we haven't uh, haven't mentioned it in a while, but if you have uh, genuinely enjoyed what you're listening to through Saga Thing or you like what we're doing here... Write us a review on your favorite podcast app, uh, iTunes, uh, Podcast Addict, whatever. I don't know where you listen to your thing, but wherever you do, (laughs) go ahead and uh, write a review
0: and tell your friends
1: about us. We want to see this audience continue to grow.
0: Right. Because uh, word of mouth and written reviews are essentially our only advertising. Because we
1: dedicate no money to this and (laughs) very little time uh, on social media advertising what we do.
0: Right. We only we we only use the sweat of our brows.
1: That's right. All right. Uh, so thanks everyone for spreading the word. So uh, and one last thing I want to thank um, Jacob Faust that is illustrator on Instagram for his continued excellent work producing artistic representations of the sagas. Um, you can check out our show notes or visit the website to see this episode's depiction of Jorin and
0: uh, and uh, Melkorka having a little a little scuffle with some socks. Excellent. Having a little three-rounder. Yeah. Uh We've we've managed to collect quite a few fantastic illustrations over the years. Mm -hmm. Um, Did we ever make any progress toward updating the shop to make those actually available for people? Oh, well, no, uh, we, we didn't do any of that. Um, <laughs> we didn't. It's though. been a very busy
1: uh, end of semester, but uh, I do have the summer yeah. coming here and maybe maybe there's a chance that some of that stuff will pop up. But you can, if you're sure. really interested in uh, Jacob Faust's stuff, um, you can go to his uh, Instagram page and he has a web page linked there uh, where you can go and buy some of his his works. Um, and you can certainly Excellent. contact him if you don't see stuff in his shop. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he'd be willing to put stuff in the shop for you. Great all right Uh, I think it's uh, time to go John Uh, we're gonna be back soon and I'll put soon in quotes with an episode of (laughs) Laxdala Saga that has some violence in it and some intrigue and some interesting and rather familiar stories Uh, something to look forward to but until then whenever that is thanks for listening everyone bye for now Four burly men with you in a hot tub is something that uh, I think our listeners would like to see. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, well. Oh. oh, Christ. You got a phone call? Um,
0: apparently I do. Hang on just a second. Uh... Hello?
1: It's a burly man asking hey, to help with... Uh, he's like, sorry, do I'm you actually them?
0: Do you need any help with your right. hot tub? Um, um, okay. Hello, way.
1: my my name is Hans. I hear that you have a large hot tub. <laughs> Would you like some help moving
0: it? As we were driving by in our four-seater full of large Scandinavian men.
1: Yes, yes. Um, All four of us drove by and we saw this hot tub in
0: your driveway. We were wondering <laughs> if we help you move it in the backyard. Perhaps we could
1: have a soak together.
0: Um, You are aware that Hans appears to be a Scandinavian vampire, right? <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> What can I
1: say? I've got... I, I move around a lot and my, my accent is very flexible.
0: Uh, you think my Russian accent's bad? <laughs> Jesus. All right. Um...